such sights to show you. Welcome to the 20th episode of The Sirens of Scream, the podcast that proves sometimes dead is better. I'm Melissa Megan, and as always, I'm joined by my two favorite terrors, Jackie DeVore and Sierra Houck. Hello. Hello. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hey, ladies. Hey. <laughs> How you doing? Hello there. <laughs> I'm going to use my stuffy nose tonight to make me sound deep and sexy. Do it. <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> first things first, let's talk about what we're loving now. We all have some recommendations to share. Let's start with Sierra today. What you got for us? The first one is not technically a recommendation, but have any of you guys seen Jordan Peele's new movie? No, I wanted to see it this weekend, yeah, but didn't get a chance to. I meant to. to see it this weekend too, but I haven't seen it yet. But I think everybody should go see it, even though I haven't <laughs> seen it yet. <laughs> I'm dying to see it. Like, I... I'm really interested to see how he transitions from comedy to horror. Me like, too. And it's also, it's getting super good reviews. It got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Damn, seriously? Everybody's all about it right now. 100% on Rotten Tomatoes is not As easy. a horror movie too. That's like, never happens. So wow. I actually, just before we started recording, I pulled up an article that showed up in my Facebook feed about mm -hmm. that movie, talking about the fact that just today it dropped down to 99% for the <gasps> first time. Because of some kind of notorious film critic who always gives kind of really hard, nasty reviews to people. Oh, well, that's not fair. Yeah. Mean critics. Like, everybody's just kind of like, yeah, of course it's him. Of mm -hmm. course he's the one that broke the 100%. <laughs> Anyways, but I wanted to bring it up because it is, like, new and everybody's excited about it right now. So yeah, I, I feel like awesome we would we would be bad horror fans not to at least mention it, <laughs> even though we're all really busy. And haven't seen it yet. By our next show, though, I yeah. expect us all to have shit to say about it. <laughs> but, anyways, um, I do want to recommend the Beware the Slenderman documentary is on HBO now, and it's about the story of two girls who get way into the Slenderman legend on Creepypasta, the like online spooky story thing. And one of them, one of the girls, convinces the other one that they have to kill their friend in order to like impress Slenderman and be able to live in his mansion in the woods. What? So this really happened. These two girls, they're like maybe 12 or 13. They stab their friend a bunch of times and leave her out to die in the woods. The story's told through interviews with their parents and videos and recordings from the trial process. And it gets into like kind of the the mental health of one of the girls and her father. He has bipolar and she probably does too. And it's it's interesting to see the one who actually did a lot of the violent stabbing really feels bad about it. And she's clearly like been manipulated by this other girl who has like no remorse for it. It'll leave you feeling real sad. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really interesting. Wasn't Lenderman originally created on like a 4chan forum? It was on um Creepypasta. I thought it was like created on 4chan, but then like grew on Creepypasta. It definitely I explains it in the movie and I just don't remember. God damn specifics. it, internet. Look what you've done. I know. It's funny. When I was watching it, I was just thinking of like my own little sister who's kind of in that age range and is definitely into these kind of spooky internet things and like spends a lot of time on the internet. Oh, no. Yeah. And I'm like, but what if she wants to murder people? Oh, no. <laughs> I listen to a podcast called Bizarre States sometimes. Yeah, I, with, uh, I listen to it too. I, I yeah. also heard that episode. <laughs> you heard that episode? Yeah. I just, I'm, 
I'm catching up, so I just heard the episode like last week. So it's funny you keep talking about things that I recently have heard. Oh yeah, <laughs> read about yeah. And I was I was interested in seeing it, but I also remember Jessica Shobot mentioning on that show that it's kind of intense and difficult to watch. I'd also imagine hear- as a parent, it's hard to watch the other parents talk about what they went through. Father's like, yeah, she showed me some pictures, and it never raised any flags. I didn't think it was gonna be a problem. I feel really bad for them, but then you also kind of want to judge them because, like, their kid did this horrible thing. But it's really interesting. Knowing the terrible thing that happened with the little kid made me feel like I'm not sure if I can watch it. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I can just see it coming and fast forward through it. I don't know. It's kind of. I feel like it's kind of nonstop talking about it, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of like serial killers and murderers and things i started listening to a new podcast it's just called serial killers not totally sure how they got that name because you'd think that that podcast they would have already been taken (laughs) but it's by a group of folks who do another podcast called unsolved murderers and one called memorable memorable lives and tragic deaths i listened to that one yeah they go about it with like kind of a teleplay kind of approach so there's like a narrator but then they have a couple of voice actors do the scene and it's kind of like theatrical and they just started this new one about serial killers and it gets into more of the the psychology of it and they start out with hh holmes which is a pretty good introduction to i think their approach to it because it's more because like everybody kind of knows the hh holmes murders so they're half telling about what he did but then also kind of analyzing why he might have done that and like bringing up oh well as a child he was abused and so like this is probably what what led to him acting this way it's intermingled with their same kind of storytelling and teleplay style too so i i'm enjoying it so far that sounds cool yeah okay so apparently podcasts don't work like websites i just tried to uh (laughs) search for it on my Uh podcast so (laughs) i'm a podcast app there's um, like six of them all of their shows are on parcast.com Okay, that's the first one on the top then. Yeah, which is also confusing because Jimmy Pardo has a really long-running comedy podcast called The Pardcast, I think is his <laughs> his uh, URL. So I feel like I, I just get confused by it. But Killer Serials apparently is the name of one, <laughs> one of the podcasts. <laughs> What's the best one? <laughs> Captain Crunch's Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, if anybody's looking for like true crime stuff, their shows are really good. Yeah, I've well, I just put it in my podcast app, so I'll be listening Yay. to that one soon. <laughs> good. Jackie, what do you have for us? I have two art-related things. <laughs> I gotta sing. I made a song for you. All right, because <laughs> the first one's gonna be a bummer for you. Oh, okay. and I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry ahead of time. No song for you then. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is the art of Michael McRae. And I ran across this specific illustration the other day, which apparently the backstory to it is that they lost their child in a very dramatic way. And him painting this picture of a mother not wanting to let go of her son while just a fuckload of corpses and skeletons are dragging him away was this artist's way of getting through it. And it's Oof. the image itself is really harrowing. And then when you go back and look at his other images, some of them are just really haunting and bizarre. And I kind of love it. You didn't tell me anything about this picture when you sent it, but I like I gathered all of that from this photo. Really? Yeah. From this it, pa- it, or painting. Yeah. I looked at it and I was like, oh, God, I know what this is. <laughs> yeah, it's it definitely is very expressive. The 
entire, all of it, all of the, uh, everything about this picture is very expressive. In fact, when we put this in the show notes, we should link to this image specifically. Definitely. And there's this kind of like reference on the painting when the boy has the like a thread tied around his waist and she's gripping it, mm-hmm. which just kind of makes me think of that, you know, the idea of like holding on by a thread. Like, oh, yeah. It made me think of like a child with some kind of a like a chronic illness where you're holding on to their life, you know, by a little thread. Yeah, I could see that. And you can see like uh, right in the center there. A particular skeleton is about to break the thread. Uh Uh-huh. Which is very upsetting. Yeah, and the mother just has this look of desperation on her face, so. His his artwork is extremely expressive, and it's it's very much tells a story just in one image, which I find very intriguing, and I absolutely love it. He's on DeviantArt. Very appropriate for our topic tonight. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I just kind of stumbled upon it a few days ago, and I was like, this is... This touches me in a way I didn't know was going to be there. So <laughs> definitely goes on my reckless for this week. The other one, though, is far more lighthearted. Far more. <laughs> it's titty bats. So <laughs> I love titty bats. <laughs> <laughs> like normal bats, except for boobs. <laughs> titty bats is this very interesting and unique artist that I stumbled on on Instagram and he just happened to have something going on on his store like right when I stumbled on him like oh shit I'm gonna buy all the things so now I have actual titty bats like on my purse and stuff so there's that he does a lot of horror related stuff with his art if you go to his shop page you instantly see this really gorgeous enamel pin of monsters holding bitches (laughs) fright flicks vintage trading cards with old school freddy krueger and wolfman and all that all of his artwork is it's very it's very unique it's very fun he has uh, some other artists on here as well in general the whole titty bats universe is definitely one of my favorites lately after I started really delving into this. I realized this guy posts a lot about things that are like near me here in Savannah. And even though his stuff says he's in like Florida or some shit, then I looked a little further and dude is definitely local to Savannah. So this was after I had placed my order with all the titty bats coming at me. And so now I'm (laughs) just like, especially happy to support a local artist here. So that was just a fun little surprise there. I follow them on Instagram too. And they started posting stuff about this tree in Savannah that people leave little treasures in. Oh, I know what tree you mean. I went down a rabbit hole looking at all the things that people had tagged on Instagram (laughs) at that tree. (laughs) Is that the tree where it's in memory of a little girl who used to work for a hotel? I think so. Her parents owned a hotel back in like the 1700s. And she got sick when she was like five or six years old. But this little girl had made like a huge impression on anybody that came through town and met her. She was just insanely friendly. So when she passed, a lot of visitors and a lot of people who had been here before apparently came back and left her presence. And that still happens. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of cool. I have two things to say about Titty Bats. (laughs) Go on. First of all, the name just makes me think of like, kind of a like self-derogatory comment that some old woman would make about her boobs <laughs> like i'm so old i got titty bats <laughs> i can totally see that second of all this knife cat action set i have to own this i don't know exactly what i'm gonna do with it but this is the most amazing thing i've ever seen for sale on the internet it's got a picture graphic picture of two cats having a knife fight in the back 
And the description on the front says, holy shit, this cat has a fucking sword. He also got a beer and a bottle of piss. That's a tiny little cat with a bottle of beer and a little bottle of piss, apparently, and a sword. And nice. It sure is. Yep. <laughs> like, I have to have this. <laughs> yeah, I love the titty bats. When I first clicked on it, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I love it. And then the further <laughs> I went into it, I'm like, man, I really love this. Oh, shit. It's a good oh, mix man. of humor and like punk rock sensibility. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm uh, I'm sharing this out for everybody because I can't, <laughs> I can't contain my excitement about the knife cat action set. I don't have a lot for you guys for recommendations this week. I'm sorry. I have one movie that I saw, which is not really horror, but it's fantasy, so I'm slipping it in there. I'm Dang, gonna recommend Melissa. No, it, kidding, it, there's ahead. there's like monster there's like monsters and creatures in it, so it counts. Okay, there we go. I'm gonna recommend Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Ooh finally saw it i didn't get to see it when i was in the theater because i couldn't convince my kid to go with me he just really me. yeah he's just he was like i don't like wizards whatever what the Could- hell no we disown him <laughs> he's like heavily in legoland right now batman legoland so he doesn't oh. know about anything else so he wouldn't see it with me um so i finally got to see it the other day and i think the reception of this was lukewarm from the majority of Harry Potter fans. I heard a lot of people kind of saying, well, it wasn't really what I expected or it wasn't what I mm-hmm. wanted. Or it, It's not a Harry Potter movie. It's just a movie that takes place in that universe. I appreciated it for that, actually. I had a lot of fun with it because there are wizards and witches and magic. But instead of focusing on, you know, the process of becoming a wizard or kind of the in-drama of the wizard families mm-hmm. <laughs> that we got in Harry Potter. Slash being a teenage wizard and all of right. the angst. Right. It's not a coming of age story, any of that stuff. It's an adult story about incredibly cool creatures, magical creatures. And really impressed with several of the performances in this. Eddie Redmayne, I don't know a lot about him and I haven't seen him a lot, but I was just kind of, his character has these kind of like strange little twitches and weird little like shy things that he does all the time and I couldn't take my eyes off of him every time he was on screen just watching his weird little movements that's always wonderful yeah it's charming like at at the beginning I thought what's wrong with this guy but then I was like (laughs) oh okay it's kind of cute like he's a person who I think we all know somebody like that maybe we are these people that are more comfortable with animals than they are with people so it makes sense once you know you know kind of who he is and what he's about and like oh I know how that feels (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a beautiful film. I thought it was really, really beautiful to watch Eye Candy. Uh, yeah. Really well made. The production value is very high. I think it just won Best Costumes, too. Did it really? Yeah, which is oh, that's, pretty that's well cool. deserved. The man who plays... He plays the uh, this young boy who's really damaged. Oh, the the Damien kid. Oh, Credence. Yeah, his name is Credence. The actor's name is Ezra Miller. That sounds familiar. Not so familiar with him or either, but when, I mean, his face is really familiar. When you see his face, you can't forget it. He's very distinctive look, but I thought he was pretty incredible too. And he is this poor young orphan who's been badly damaged by just really terrible adoptive mother who's like Mm -hmm. abusive and nasty. So uh, he's very much in his own head all the time, (laughs) except when he's not. He was in, we need to talk about Kevin. Oh, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, which is an, also an incredibly disturbing, powerful movie. Yeah, he's Kevin. <laughs> I remember that now. He was younger in that film. Great movie. I definitely recommend seeing it. And I think, you know, don't go into it expecting Harry Potter. It's not what it is. But 
I like it because I think it's cool to have like a different view of the same universe that we already love. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Like what happens outside of Hogwarts? I've actually always wondered that because like the Harry Potter stories just make Hogwarts sound like the biggest thing that happens in that world at all. It's like, can it really be the school that you graduate from and you go away from? So what happens <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, Fantastic Beasts takes place in New York. So you get to see like the British magic mixed with the American magic and kind of see what the difference is between those two. Just like everything else in life, there's kind of like different slang and there's different practices. And there is a moment when one of the American wizards makes a comment about the best school the best wizarding school is her school. And Eddie Redmayne's character kind of like says under his breath, like, oh, no, Hogwarts is definitely the best school. <laughs> and they kind of have this like college pride moment, <laughs> which is pretty cute. I just put together while you were saying that Damien Kit, he was Damien in Californication. I didn't actually watch that show. Oh, well, then <laughs> I guess that's just not related. <laughs> I think it's Kevin that I remember him from, but he was just so, he was younger, so it was different to see him as, like, you know, I don't know, he's probably, like, looked like he was, like, 20-something now. We're gonna take a quick break and get some blankets and some, probably some more tea, because I think Jackie and I are both having, like, nose and breathing problems. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe turn on a few extra lights before we dive into our dissection of the comic series Witches. Well, you better watch out, We are going to talk about a comic book series tonight that we sort of all, we took a a look at a list of scary books and we all voted on covering this one and it's called Witches. It's spelled W-Y-T-C-H-E-S. The writing in this book is by Scott Snyder. The art is by Jock. The letters are by Clem Robbins. Colors are by Matt Hollingsworth and it's published by Image Comics. Wait, I I gotta interrupt you here. We barely took a vote. You were like... Dude, you guys will love this. And we're like, okay, we trust you. Go for it, Melissa. Yeah, that's how it went down. (laughs) If you haven't read this yet, I'll give you a quick little synopsis on this. When the Rooks family moves to the remote town of Litchfield, New Hampshire, to escape a haunting trauma, they're hopeful about starting over. But something evil is waiting for them in the woods just beyond town. Watching from the trees, ancient and hungry. If you haven't heard of this comic series before, I just wanted to share really quickly a couple of professional reviews on this because I think this book really earns every bit of critical acclaim that it's gotten. USA Today said it's dark and brutal, which is are like nothing horror fans have ever seen. 
Stephen King says it's fabulous, a triumph. And Stephen's son, Joe Hill, says if you read the first four pages of Witches, there's no turning back. Scary as fuck and impossible to put down. Bravo. I think we all feel that way after reading this. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Particularly that last one. As soon as I started reading this. Tore through it. Blew through it in a day. Like, it's just... I remember you sending me a message like, I need more of this. I need more of it now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to go over a general impression of the book first, which is going to be spoiler free. And I just want to say that because after we kind of cover our general discussion, then we'll be diving in much deeper to talk about the plot and characters here, which will include tons of spoilers. Sierra, let me start with you. I felt like this book in particular was kind of up your alley since you're amongst the three of us, the biggest into sort of like the supernatural witch. Yeah tropes so what did you think of this i liked it it was definitely a different interpretation of what witch witches are if the book wasn't called witches i don't know if i'd even call the creatures witches or even relate those things at all but mostly what i was captivated by when i was reading this was just the artwork using textures that maybe shouldn't be there don't totally make sense and using kind of a murky color palette, but still making it work and not look gross, I think was really impressive. It's something that I haven't really seen before. Jackie, what were your general impressions of the book? I fully agree with everything Sierra just said. To add to it, the witches, the actual design of the witches, I feel like is kind of a take on some older tales and stories I've heard of witches being these kind of grotesque monsters who have evolved into these weird beings after sacrificing parts of themselves to other like demonic forces kind of thing it was such a unique twist on just anything i've seen of a witch in the past which was so cool the artwork to me seems almost visceral it's perfect like i can't even imagine better artwork in in any way and like in any possible way for this kind of story it is absolutely fantastic to the point that while i would love to see a film adaptation of something like this like how would they make that work you know i don't know like that's one of those things that'd be really hard to carry over i feel Mm -hmm. and the colors i totally agree with sierra that they're murky without being muddy is the thing like they're not like for sure clouded and it all pulls together really really well one thing i really enjoyed about the storyline is how they matched up the past trauma and the whole story of the background of the rooks family with what was going on with the rooks family in modern day like the way Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. went back and forth made sense and it really uh integrated well like the timelines integrated well within themselves so that's that's kind of hard to pull off especially in a comic Uh that was something i appreciated a lot i found sierra's comment about this not being like she wouldn't have called it witches if that wasn't the name of the book i found that interesting because they actually mention in the story at some point maybe even twice in the story that the people who are involved with these witches but not witches come to be known as witches people that are get involved with them sort of like the it's it's the term witches has been purposely sort of pointed at people at the people instead of the creatures yeah it's like a cover for the creatures and and it's the people who are the ones that are getting burned at the stake and sort of tagged as as uh, witches so i found that it's really interesting because you know sierra like what she said is just kind of an example of that is like this isn't what we think of as witches we've been bamboozled (laughs) (laughs) what a twist yeah that's a really really clever take on it there i didn't pick up on that while reading it but damn believe the the sheriff maybe at one point makes a comment about 
the fact that, you know, it's the people who are accused of being witches and hung and burned for being witches, not the witches themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love this book. There are many, many horror comic books that I read, but this one in particular jarred me in a way that not many have, maybe besides Harrow County, which we've already covered on the show. I thought that the artwork, I remember when I first started reading this, the artwork I found a little bit confusing at times because it's so sort of like everything's kind of like murky and like splashed on top of itself. Maybe a few pages in, you start to realize that there's really no better style for this kind of story because they're, I think the the style really kind of brings you in and out of reality very well. Mm-hmm, definitely. Now you're in witch land and now you're back in reality and now you're in witch land again and now you're in a flashback. It kind of mm-hmm. like really delineates what's happening in these different timelines and different places really well. So absolutely. Yeah. I thought this book was really impressive and I wanted to share it with the sirens because I think that it's, it's the, a book that I remember kind of like giving me chills. And making me feel thrown off after I read it. Like, oh, I just feel uncomfortable and weird after that. <laughs> yeah, I felt uncomfortable and weird, but also like, damn it, I want to get back to that world. Why is there not more? Damn it. <laughs> Funny you mentioned Harold County because I was thinking about that a lot while reading this. Because it seems like there are some similarities, specifically with the tree, like the references to the mm-hmm. tree and all that. But damn, witches is so much more brutal than Harrow County. Yeah, it definitely is more of like an R rating. Yeah. I think that translating this into a movie when, when Jackie, when you made that comment, the first thing I thought was definitely physical effects, like, you mm-hmm. know, would have to be used in this just to kind of show like that there is there's a, a visceral feeling to everything yeah. in this book, whether you're talking about the witches and how they look and how they feel, or whether you're talking about the experiences of the people through the story there's several things that happen that are kind of nasty and bloody and gross related to that i really love the the characters the uh, trauma that the characters go through it's very strange but at the same time their reactions to trauma are very like real world and relatable like there's like mm-hmm. there's some solid character development there i think from here on out we can safely say our conversation is going to include spoilers so if you haven't read the book yet and you want to avoid spoiling it you should stop listening Go read it and then come back and enjoy this because we have a lot of stuff to talk about and I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read the book yet. The first thing I want to talk about is that intro, right? Unexpected, brutal. It's quite the setup for a curse that spans Mm -hmm. centuries of families. Did you guys find yourselves kind of wondering as you read through the story how the Cray family are associated and where they would play into the story? I figured it would tie together eventually, but I I did have that thought like in the back of my mind. I'm like, okay, so when are the Cray family going to come up? Because you knew they were coming. You knew they would show up there. I figured it would be with the town folk when they started coming into the Mm -hmm. story. I never Mm -hmm. expected it would be the mother. Never. Like this kind of like the town's made up of Crays. Or the sheriff would reveal that he was the little boy or the little boy was his grandfather whatever i forget the timeline there but it really took me by surprise to see where that particular storyline went i read the intro and then immediately forgot it while i was reading the rest of the story (laughs) like i don't know why i didn't think it would come back around or be related but i thought it was just like oh it's just like setting the tone kind of thing so I was super thrown for a loop. <laughs> the tone is, this is going to be incredibly brutal and nasty. <laughs> yeah, it sets yeah. it very firmly. Like, it, it hits you in the face like that rock hit her in the face, basically. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I remember reading this for the first time, and if you're reading it physically and not digitally, on one page has the mother who's stuck in a tree, and she's begging her son to help her, and the boy asks why she's in there, and on the very next page you turn, and you see him smack her in the face with a rock, and it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. What just happened? <laughs> like, I I think I went back once to see if I missed something, like, what? How did that happen? Just totally don't expect to see this little boy just clock his mom in the face with a rock. When she's begging for help. Just no mercy. Pledged is pledged. You gotta go, bitch. Sorry. Dems the rules. Later, mom. <laughs> Just leaves her in the tree. I think the biggest relationship of this story that it really revolves around, that we might as well jump into because it's a big topic, is the relationship between Sailor and her dad. Very unique and special. I find it particularly interesting because... The more often the direction to go is by emphasizing the strength of a relationship between a mother and child. Mm -hmm. Dads mm -hmm. often get the shaft on that and they're more often painted as like the family villain. Or just absent. Yeah. Right. Or just absent or they're just kind of like a backdrop. Yeah. They're they're not really like a... a shadow in the background kind of thing. Do you think that this particular aspect of the Rooks family set up the twist at the end just right? Or do you think it was something more to this choice besides just leading to a twist? I think that it was definitely setting the stage for me. I wasn't even consciously thinking of it so much. But when Sale's mom was like, we can just forget all about it. We just have to give her up and then we can forget about it and be happy again. It felt like all the more of a betrayal to the father because they were building that really strong relationship between the two of them this whole time. I absolutely agree there. It didn't even occur to me that... The mother wasn't as focused on with her relationship with Sailor mm -hmm. as much as the father, just because the relationship between Sailor and Charlie are so, it's so engrossing. Like, it really draws you in. So I was so distracted by that relationship in a good way that I didn't uh -huh. even realize that the mother, she kind of plays background there for quite a while. Yeah. And then when that betrayal happens, I immediately thought, that bitch has barely even been around. I know, <laughs> like, right? Me too. Yeah. Like, you kind of just take it for granted. Like, oh, of course the mom and the daughter are close. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just kind of assume it just because of the strength of the bond between father and daughter. Mm -hmm. It was a nice setup. I didn't see that coming. I mean, Sailor has all these anxiety issues, right? And her father seems really, really in tune with that. Yeah. And they do kind of have that one scene where they're in the playground... You know, and the mom's there with him and they're both kind of trying, they're both worrying together and kind of wringing their hands about where Sailor is. They can't find her in the playground. Mm -hmm. So it's obvious that the mother is aware that Sailor needs that extra attention. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. dad is definitely like, he seems like 110% invested in helping her kind of make her way through life. In that particular scene is when he reveals that he actually went through anxiety issues as a kid as well. I think one of his big fears too is that she's going to get stuck in that versus grow out of it yeah right like he he really see like yearns for a future of her being independent and being on her own but then with like his addiction i feel like she has had to be independent and had to kind of be a parent to her father yeah in some aspects so i think maybe he feels a little guilty about that I think, too, Lucy, the mom, being in a wheelchair through most of the book is sort of a sneaky trick from Scott Snyder to kind of, like, make you not aware of the fact that the mother's not as invested in this relationship. Because you kind of think, oh, well, she's, you know, like, she can't quite do the same things. Or you, you kind right. of, like, put this handicap on her automatically that, like, 
she doesn't really need to be there as much because she's got a hard time because she's mm-hmm. in a wheelchair. A literal handicap. Yeah. When he goes up and talks to Sailor in her room, especially when he's putting her to bed and all that, you know that the mother's wheelchair access to the upstairs isn't even set up yet. That yeah. was sneaky as hell because you just immediately dismiss yeah. that as well she can't physically be there so it's an easy way to like not pay attention to how much yeah. the mother is involved <laughs> clever there's also an ongoing theme in this book with amusement parks which i found really interesting and this is something that stuck out to me on my first read on this the comic that charlie's writing that's kind of like interspersed in little bits through the book is based inside of an amusement park and his first comic that he references that was really successful was also (laughs) his experience with sailor that we see in flashbacks he had this kind of traumatic experience with her when he was drunk takes place on a ferris wheel and he has a ferris wheel tattoo on his arm which i thought was particularly prominently displayed at various points through the story like he was always wearing short sleeves and you can always see it why do you think that setting is so important to charlie or to the story i kind of want to go back personally and see exactly what situations that that tattoo is prominently displayed in because i feel like that's going to give more clues to his relationship with sailor it does go into how he and reggie when they were growing up, broke into that abandoned amusement park and would hang out there a lot. It seems pretty lineal with his making the comic, Taylor the comic, about an amusement park, and it seems like it ties together the Ferris wheel tattoo and all. But I think the underlying implication there is that it ties him to his childhood and thus ties him to Sailor. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just speculating here, if and when I go back and reread this just to look into those little details... I feel like that tattoo is going to be prominently displayed during every heart-to-heart conversation he has with Sailor. Interesting. Say the first time, I'm flipping through it now, and the first time I see it, he's wearing like a tank top, and he's putting Sailor to bed and sort of like talking to her about how she thinks that Annie's disappearance is her fault, and they keep focusing on that tattoo and showing it. I want to say it's a symbol of childhood in a way that you want it to be this really safe thing, and like you look back on it fondly. But then it turns out to be something that's not safe and not something that you could definitely cherish and not something that you would want to escape to in a way. Yeah. They don't give you like a timeline of when it was done. So who knows if it was teenage thing or something. But mm-hmm. I could also see I know a lot of people get tattoos to sort of remind them of it could yeah. have been done after his addiction. Yeah, kind of like a reminder of like, hey, this yeah. was your low point. Let's not go back there. Maybe trying to reclaim it as a happy memory instead of what it became with his experience with sailor speaking which i absolutely adore the name sailor like i'm totally in love with it it's it's different because you know they kind of refer Mm -hmm. to her as sail sometimes and sometimes they call her sailor it kind of took me by surprise in the beginning when i kept seeing sails like did i miss Mm -hmm. something here is this like a weird nickname or like what's going on here and then when they said sailor i'm like oh that's her name how cool i have quite a few notes that i want to talk about as far as the like extra material that scott snyder included in this book all the letters that he writes in the back but one thing that didn't i didn't see any real kind of mention in there maybe i missed it of the amusement park references so i feel like there's something i'm missing in that that like it means something that i'm not Mm -hmm. getting (laughs) let's talk about annie the bully that threatens sailor in a pretty horrible way Mm -hmm. i think this is where the book really gets particularly heavy and uncomfortable for the first time this concept of giving a person a way out or a way to get rid of someone who's terrible by pledging them to the witches these letters that scott snyder puts in the back he always titles them who would you pledge This is kind of a horrible question to ask, but I feel like I have to ask it because it's in the book. Do you think you could ever pledge someone? Yes. Don't don't name any names, (laughs) just in case. (laughs) Like, there's one particular person I could pledge, and 
you know, we're not going to get into it in detail, but... Am I also thinking of the same person, Jackie? No, no, I don't think so. But now that she mentioned it... in the news a lot? Let me say two. <laughs> mm-hmm. For the greater good. Probably. It is a way to, like... It, you don't have to do it yourself. You just have to pledge them, and then it's like... I'm helping the greater, the betterment of all of us as a whole. Right. Like, you don't have to get um, your so hands dirty. So you kind of, like, set it and forget <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, it's, like, a way to kind of, like, wash your hands mm-hmm. of your problem. Mm-hmm. Also sort of gives you a way to, like, blame it on these creatures. Like, well, I didn't know it was really going to be like that. Or, you know, I didn't. Yeah. Although, I don't know. Most of these people seem to know very yeah. clearly what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> have a lot of experience with this. I don't know. I had a I had an experience with a bully when I was a teenager. While I hated her is uh like a teenager hates people, I don't think I I don't know that I ever hated someone enough to wish that they would be tormented and trapped in a tree and cooked alive by ghosts mm-hmm. <laughs> or by witches. Related to that, in terms of what Sailor was wishing, she says that she was just wishing Annie would go away. So that seems like part of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Part of what makes that really heavy is her breakdown about how she didn't realize exactly what would happen when she was wishing. Well, we know now that she didn't pledge her. But she thinks it's her fault in terms of wishing Mm -hmm. her away. Right, which makes sense because, you know, you think, I mean, there's a lot of people like that, right? That you think, oh, I just wish this person fucking go away and be gone forever. But (laughs) you don't think to yourself, like, I wish this brutal and terrible death (laughs) on this person. (laughs) You just want them to disappear (laughs) nicely. Painlessly, maybe a little bit. Of, like maybe like a punch in the eye, right? <laughs> but not being like eaten by cannibal witches. Yeah. <laughs> did either of you ever have kind of a bully experience like Sailor did? Like you don't have to talk about it if it's you know, of course, too weird and uncomfortable. But I didn't. Not like peer on peer kind of bullies. Not really. No. It was a little strange for me because the bully that I had in uh in high school actually was very similar to Annie. Like, not as terrible. She never pulled a gun on me or anything. Mm -hmm. But this kind of, like, really tall, like, athletic sort of... Burly kind of girl. Yeah, burly girl that I just always felt, like, was way bigger and meaner than me. Mm -hmm. I feel like I always had, like, some kids here and there try to pick on me, but you guys know I have quite the mouth on me. I never really (laughs) took that kind of shit. The mouth is sometimes what gets <laughs> yeah. the attention of the bullies. So <laughs> that's probably how I got in trouble to begin with. What do you think about the witches sort of planting themselves inside the victims? I thought that was kind of a weird and interesting take on that. Like a couple examples are the deer in the beginning that shows up in the office and sort of has this moment where it is making the witch sound mm-hmm. kind of in, in the deer's eyes like turn red and bites its tongue off in this really disgusting, horrible That felt moment. very evil dead. <laughs> or like the lump in Sailor's yeah. neck. The deer thing was up. one of those like extremely visceral kind of moments that was just really uncomfortable. But with the mm-hmm. witches uh planting themselves into various victims and things, I really wanted to know more about that. Like I really wanted to yeah, me too. delve into that more and I was hoping maybe that would be the kind of thing that they would talk about in the second book. I thought of a couple ideas. Like it could be sort of a way of marking their food, like kind of how sharks sort of will tag something and take like a nibble of it and kind of give it the idea that like you're my next prey or it could kind of be just them enjoying the process of tormenting and preparing the pledge for their arrival because I feel like 
these kind of stories that are based around kind of ancient mythological creatures like this they tend to emphasize that they like they enjoy the the horror and the torment of the person as much as you know defeating them yeah like fear makes the meat taste worse <laughs> it does <laughs> fear makes them tender mm-hmm. uh didn't clara mention something about the lump in sailor's neck being a sort of tracker for the witches that they would know where she was because of it i feel like that came up did she it seemed like with the eyeball imagery in the lump seemed like it maybe was like we're watching yeah. you kind of thing so it's kind of like tagging yeah. the person right and sort of saying keeping like, tabs on them yeah don't leave town <laughs> i feel like all horror movies whenever you see like if there's a supernatural element whether it's a demon or a witch or a ghost that's following somebody or or preying on somebody it's it's dragged out in a way that like first something happens to that person that involves this this demon or this ghost Mm -hmm. and then the person is like the only one who can see it after that and you know there's always like multiple moments when like the thing makes itself known for a quick moment or Mm -hmm. just keeps reminding the victim that like (laughs) you're gonna die hey i'm still here (laughs) yeah so i feel like in horror when it's bad they kind of use body horror as a way to like get a reaction out of folks and like oh it's just so creepy but but when it's used in this book, it is kind of like, ooh, what is that meaning behind it? Like, what are what are the witches actually doing there? Which is just a testament to, like, how good the story is. Yeah. Especially when the lump turn appears as an yeah. eye. Because then it's like, you already have this feeling that the witches are watching people all the time. And that they're sort of, like, they're always creeping, like, behind the closest tree or around the corner. <laughs> so to see that eyeball. I thought the whole scene with, with a sailor swimming in the pool... When that thing, the bandage comes off and the thing sort of decides to make itself known by throbbing out of her neck. It was really super creepy. Yeah, that was something special. Yeah, especially when something happens like that and it's sort of in a public place and there's other people around. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh shit, they're really, like, they can seriously, like, take her anytime. Yeah. (laughs) She doesn't have to be in a dark room alone for that to happen. And it's like you're with, you're in high school and you're with all of your, like, school friends and you don't want to, like, be a weird, awkward kid to begin with. Yeah. And then you have mm-hmm. this, like, terrible thing happening to you that you're just trying to, like, cover up and make sure nobody notices. She's already super self-conscious showing up at this new school with a known past that everybody in town knows. Yeah. And then being the new kid, but then also, like, that murderer kid. <laughs> yeah. Climbing out of the pool with an eyeball sticking out of your neck is yeah, not going to no. make you new friends. Mm-mm. Not going to win any <laughs> playdates. At one point here, Sheriff Petal refers to them as gods of selfishness. Do you think that's why Lucy would pledge her own daughter to save herself and to heal herself? And do you think the ultimate selfish act, sacrificing your own child for one's second chance, is kind of what we're supposed to see here? Like, she's making the ultimate sacrifice in a bad way. Usually ultimate sacrifice is used like, yeah, like you're sacrificing yourself, but she's sacrificing her daughter for herself. Mm -hmm. It totally twists what we think of what motherhood should be. Yeah. It's one of those things that makes the whole story just unsettling. That betrayal of a mother's love kind of ideal there. I definitely, definitely think Lucy was straight up out for herself on that. And it actually really drove me crazy that she was trying to get Charlie on her side by saying, oh, we can start over. This is for us. We could have another kid and all that. I'm like, yeah, bitch. We can just forget about it. Like, bitch, you were looking out for yourself. Come on. Yeah. Let's be real about it. I couldn't tell if that was her trying to reason it out for herself and make it okay, or if that was her just trying to manipulate Maybe a bit of both, honestly. 
Yeah. If you look back, I think they almost were trying to set up Charlie as the selfish one in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I had to go back and I sort of made this timeline for us because I, it jumps around so much that I felt like I wanted to organize in my head like the way that yeah. things yeah. happen in their lives. So in September 2011, Lucy has a car accident and she gets paralyzed. And then somewhere between 2011 to 2013 is when Charlie struggles with his alcoholism. Scott Steiner really kind of focuses on his alcoholism and the fact that he's just a shitty dad at first. Yeah. And I feel like usually when that happens in a story, it's because they're kind of setting you up to think, oh, he's really selfish. Like he just wants to have his life back. His wife is paralyzed, so he's having a pity party for himself. Mm-hmm. And he should really be there for her, but instead he's being selfish and going out and getting drunk, yeah. having nostalgia times. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's another kind of like switcheroo that he plays on you there. And he tries to set up Charlie as the selfish one. He's obviously becomes like completely selfless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a minute there, I really thought Lucy's trying to get him to be on board with pledging sailor thing was going to work. And I was like, Really, really hoping, like, please oh work, my please gosh. work. How would you feel if the book ended that way? I would just way? be really mad. I probably would have thrown the book across the room and not read, yeah. like, the very ending. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been rough. I find the whole concept of the witches being gods of selfishness really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really gives them a different layer of complexity. Yeah. They're not just monsters, but they actually... They serve a purpose, kind of. They make reference to the fact that, like, they'll find your family by basically latching on to somebody who is selfish and miserable and sort of in a place where they're they're fragile Mm -hmm. and they're open to that they show up with their gifts of healing and riches and whatever it is that you want at your at your lowest moment and they take advantage of that but you have to make the move you know you have to be the one to to give somebody up so that's where the selfishness comes in that's also why i don't totally see them as witches i see them more as demons because i feel like demons and the devil are always trying to like make a deal with mm-hmm. you in stories and i feel like the witches are also kind of like i'll give you what you want but you have to give me a soul kind and that of whole thing. preying on those who are really in a bad place is like such ancient demonic, demonic and satanic yeah. lore there they don't seem to have much language so i don't know they don't you know they don't come across as particularly manipulative creatures yeah. <laughs> kind of a thing where people know about who they are and what they do and like hey witches well yeah do they just like speak through their followers basically yeah like you just know that they're out there so on the same point is selflessness what prompted charlie to sacrifice himself for sailor do you think maybe a drive to make up for the times that he wasn't there during his benders and a way to pay her back for his mistakes as a father i honestly think that that entire scene of charlie sacrificing himself was like the ultimate selfless act and trying to make up mm-hmm. for not being there as a father. Like, he's basically saying, you want to see how much of a father I can be? I'm going to be, like, one hell of a father. Here I go. Yeah. He's in it. <laughs> he's getting it done. His final moment of fatherhood, I thought, was really super charming when he just looks at her and he says, mouths and butts, babe. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and just hits his face like, it. I'm out of here. <laughs> Which was also kind of, like, his final effort to yeah. give her some strength. Yeah, right? totally. Because that's what they were, that was their thing to get, to help her get through things was to talk about something funny, funny monster hunting moments. Mm -hmm. He was trying to like one last shot to help her get through. When they mentioned that part in the beginning about her being the ultimate slayer of mythical creatures or something, that really threw me off. I like, I thought I was getting into a Buffy type of story. I was like, is she the chosen (laughs) one? It's all real. (laughs) She's a witch hunter. That's a different story. Sierra, I don't know. You read this digitally, which is how I read it the first time. Yeah, I don't think I have those extra bits. 
because I think I would have read them, but I didn't read them. I don't think you do, because I remember the first time I read it, I wasn't aware that those were there. Okay. They were probably present. What usually happens in comics is they put the extra material in each individual issue. Yeah. And then once they collect it in a trade, then they combine all of it at the end. This was my first time reading it in the trade paperback, so I got to see all these little stories in the back from Scott Snyder. So I'm glad I put some of this in here. Yeah, I saw like the step-by-step how they color it and those kinds of things. Uh Did you see the mini-comic? There was a little mini-comic in the back. I think so, but I don't remember what it is. Little kind of like tag-on story? I don't remember. I've had had some wine, so... I included some stuff in here about that. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I did so that we can kind of help Sierra know what she missed out at the end of this. Thank you. Scott Snyder tells the story of his childhood adventures into the woods with his friend Ryan and how those explorations birthed the idea of the witch in the woods. So it's really interesting. He actually tells us the whole story of like where this came from and it was an actual experience that he had with his friend. This idea would revisit him as an adult when he returns to the trail in the woods And he thought he spotted a dark figure hiding behind a tree, just like the one his friend described when they were kids. That became the witches who wait patiently for you to return to them so they can eat you or whoever you offer up as your pledge to save yourself. I'm wondering if you guys have any childhood stories like these that you could imagine returning to as an adult and kind of being scared all over again. Immediate thing that popped into my head. My family, we would do a lot of camping down in Newport Beach when I was growing up and the way that the we always went to the same campsite the way it was set up there were all these little trails and things and my dad would point to little spots in the mud and be like that's quicksand there are mermaids (laughs) in there and they will eat you (laughs) and I feel like my dad was always coming up with little things like that of like there's definitely monsters in there you just can't see them so yeah there's a ton of those things that I could totally go back to that's awesome I feel like mine if there were any like that it would be instances where like I would see and hear some weird shit that has me on the verge of like really believing in ghosts and if I saw or heard them when I was an adult in those same places I'd be like all right I'm done these are definitely ghosts let's yeah <laughs> I expected you to say, "Oh no, that's definitely just a coat rack <laughs> and like some weird clothes that's making those shadows." <laughs> but yeah, no, big ones are real. I remember at one point in my childhood, I can't tell you even what town it was in because it's such a foggy memory now. But we lived in a particular house. You know how you sort of remember homes as a child, where like you remember weird little details, but you can't really place totally. like what the house looks like. I used to have dreams in this house i had terrible dreams all the time that would jump back and forth between being well i guess they were claustrophobic Mm -hmm. where i would i would have dreams that i would wake up and my bed was really huge and i was almost touching the ceiling or my bed was really small and the room Hmm. was huge and empty like just bare walls i also had a closet in that room that i used to dream that there was an owl in the closet watching me that's probably like, yeah, aliens. definitely aliens. So I just, yeah, I feel like if I ever had the occasion of walking into this house and was in that particular bedroom again, that that might come back to haunt me because mm-hmm. that room just gave me, the whole room just gave me nightmares for some reason. And I don't know why. Interesting. That's so weird. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird dream. And I still get things like that where things feel either way too big or way too small. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's really claustrophobia or what it is but that's so interesting i don't think i've ever heard that before that's also something that you point out about different horror things whenever we're talking about them where it's relevant like oh that's too big and too small at the same time (laughs) (laughs) which is so true but it's something that i've never thought of until i've like had conversations with you 
That's pretty interesting. We're yeah. going into the psychology of Melissa here. <laughs> we don't want to go there. But I mean, that's kind of going to be our next episode. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> the basic story, because Sierra didn't read this, was that Scott Snyder and his friend would always go out into the woods and kind of hide out in the spot that they found they found in really old abandoned what was it it was a meat truck Mm. and they would hide and they would kind of like bring lunch out there and they would explore the woods and at one point he and his friend were out there and his friend ryan jumped up and grabbed a baseball bat and said who are you what are you doing here and like yelled at somebody and got turned around and said that nobody was there and his friend insisted that he saw a dark figure peering out from behind a tree like watching them and it disappeared. Which is straight up terrifying. Yeah. But like, if you're hanging out in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> in a weird right. abandoned meat truck, you're kind of asking for some spooky shit. <laughs> <laughs> and this was all happened sort of in the woods around a, a family home that they own that was kind of used as a summer home mm-hmm. that him and his family go to. So he goes back as an adult with his family and at one point decides to go for a run and sort of see if the trail is still there. And he went there. I don't even think he went down the trail at this point. He found the old meat truck again. It was still there. But he said at one point he turned and saw a dark figure behind a tree. (gasps) And that was what gave him the idea that like the witches are always waiting. Just kind of Mm -hmm. waiting there for you to return. That's awesome. This entire story is super personal to him. Which I didn't know until I read all this extra material in the back. That makes sense for, for why it's so good. Multiple different reasons. Yeah, yeah. He also talks about having a lot of anxiety issues as a, a child. And now he's a father. And then he kind of, he puts himself in the place of like being a parent to a child with anxiety and the fears that come along with that and like not doing a good enough job and helping them cope and things like that. So mm-hmm. the art. We've said this a few times, but I think it's important to go back to it for a minute. The colors, the texture, the blending... I think it had much of it had a very kind of dreamlike feeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything's so dense and heavy. And something I found really cool and interesting that Jock and Hollingsworth, I think they pulled off amazingly was kind of this feeling of like the witches being part of their surroundings, how they sort of grow from and disappear into the woods and the Mm -hmm. leaves and the trees. And they even make reference in the story at some point how some of the most ancient and deep burrows have witches that are rooted. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Like they're growing out of the ground and out of the trees or growing into them. One thing that really interested me about the coloring in particular is when you read his process, Matt Hollingsworth's process for the coloring, and he talks about the uh, watercolor and liquid acrylic uh, spatter there. He calls Mm -hmm. it the hero spatter in the particular example that he gives in this one particular scene. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so like what other... What other spatters are there? I know. Why is it? Because also, when I was reading probably the first dozen pages or so, I was like, wow, this splatter is a lot. It's like really heavy handed and kind of distracting. But then like kind of getting more into the visual language of the story, it started to make a little more sense. I was right there with you at at first. I was like, this is kind of hard to take in with all of this. And then you just get a mm-hmm. few more pages in and it's like, actually, it kind of kind of blends together with the story it disturbingly works. well. Okay. All right. I'm with you. Yeah. Let's do this. At first I was like, oh, this is just kind of yeah. like gaudy and a little like maybe outdated. It's interesting that it's mixed media because I think a lot of comics now have gone to digital mm-hmm. work. And so the fact that he's taking like actual paper and, and you know spattering acrylic and watercolors on it and then layering it on top of other things is really interesting and shows the 
the high level of care that went into I actually think we're Mm -hmm. seeing kind of a resurgence back to mixed media lately because if Carroll County is a good example of it they actually use watercolor for a lot of coloring on that Uh so it seems like in order to get those like really nice textures and really nice colorings and art ideas that really meld together it's it's a mix these days of uh, inks, actual paint or markers, and digital. Seems like that's where some of these kind of high art comics is what I'm going to decide to call this right now. Or kind of going. Yeah, that works. <laughs> that's a good word for it. I wonder, because I assume that process obviously takes longer. So I wonder what other horror comics are being made right now in that same style that just haven't come out yet yeah it definitely lends a a particular feel like a really specific kind of feel to those sorts of comics so it works really well for horror well i mean we know that what works well for horror in general is for something to feel very textured and visceral right yeah because i guess the best way to make you feel like yeah to make you feel like you can feel the texture of what's happening is to layer things you know we have Mm -hmm. a um a comic artist who wants to come and hang out with us sometimes maybe we can uh Maybe we should make an episode about, about this it. particular thing. That'd be really good. Yeah. For sure. I feel like when we talked to Morty mm-hmm. for Escape from Jesus Island, I think that he talked about doing a lot of multimedia work with that yeah. yeah. Um, to kind of create like a photogenic layered feel about it. The coloring is incredible. And I think that if you go back and you sort of flip through it, I said earlier the the colors really used to great effect to distinguish between like conversations that are happening in the family that are very kind of normal mm-hmm. are very clean and bright like everything there's no spatter everything's very like you know well actually there's a little bit in here in this moment with the deer but maybe that's because things are about to go yeah fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and the minute that she you're in a spot like like with annie everything is totally gray and dark mm-hmm. even their skin is gray all these moments when you know anytime the witches are around or something's happening with the witches the color turns very red and orange and kind of alarming yeah. feeling. yep and there's these huge like kind of tears of splatters across the page in red that give the whole thing this very kind of like you just walked into a weird fucked up place that's really dangerous and bad mm-hmm. <laughs> the spatter that's given in various scenes is almost like that like screechy violin sound that you can hear in the background of yes. horror movies with that <laughs> that's so true you know, when the tension is building up scott snyder we talked about a little bit with the post material at the end but I think it's worth saying here, noting that he really opens up in this material about his family, his fears, and his excitement about the comics industry and how it's changing to invite more unique stories and storytellers in. This is something that, like, while in comics, I think it's become more common for letters and post material to be included at the end. Mm-hmm. Some comics are kind of known for that now because the 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 creators will respond to lots of fan letters and they'll include, like, fan photos and fan art at the end and that's really cool which i think is also a very different thing that's happening in comics this one struck me because i you know i didn't expect because i the first time i read it it wasn't in there so i didn't expect to see such a personal opening up it's not just the story of how he comes up with it but he talks a lot about his family and becoming a parent he gives actual you know, personal examples of like things that he's gone through with his kid and he even like a few moments that he screwed up and made the wrong decision and did something bad, which takes a lot of a lot of guts to like admit to, to admit your parenting mistakes. They happen, but we all like to pretend they don't happen, you know? Yeah. 
things that he talks a lot about that the which we've addressed before on the show the ultimate fear of the parent which is failing to keep your kids safe really like huge it's a fear that never goes away ever like your kid's sleeping and you're still afraid that something's gonna go wrong and that you missed it (laughs) you know or like is something is there gonna be like is my kid's like space heater gonna light on fire like something's gonna happen that's gonna be my fault and it's gonna be because i failed to keep them safe and he talks about that and how that intense fear really influences the vein in the background of this story of the relationship between sailor yeah you can really see that especially in the scene where i guess clara was in the house and she broke the window and stuff but charlie's just like flipping his shit because there's a broken window and his daughter is gone can like feel charlie's terror there at something happening to his daughter and his like it, it his feelings on it are expressed so well on in this story I obviously don't know what it's like to be a parent and feel that particularly, but I almost feel like I, I've got a decent explanation here just reading a story like this. It puts a whole new layer of interest to me on this to hear the like the personal attachment from the mm-hmm. creator. And that's something that you don't often get. I found that was really interesting and really intriguing to hear to kind of hear everything in his words and hear him talk about why the story is so personal to him. So here's a a little quote that I wanted to share from Snyder that he says at the back of this book that I found really interesting and kind of something that I think appeals to us and works with us. (laughs) He said, at the end of the day, I guess I love horror because at its best, horror scares me into not being well, so damn scared. Let's discuss the idea of experiencing horror in order to face and cope with real life fears and anxieties. Because that's what he basically says, that like his anxiety as a child, he used the story to kind of like make himself face it and deal with it and he likes to read and and experience horror for that like you don't really have to face your fear in real life you don't have to go find the killer clown and see his face (laughs) you know but like yeah but if you read a book about him then you're kind of facing your fear that way i mean i can see his point there and i guess i can uh, apply it to a couple of my like more minor anxieties and fears in life but i'm still not gonna fucking sit down and watch arachnophobia ever again (laughs) well and i think that this whole concept was captured really beautifully in the story with charlie and sailor their whole banter about how she's the monster killer and like oh you're so strong you're gonna go fight those monsters being a fan of horror you kind of put yourself in that role of like i can totally fight those monsters (laughs) because i know the rules about being in a horror movie and i know how to survive and I know, like, what I would do if zombies attacked or whatever. So, like, giving yourself strength by being strong enough to put yourself in the situation. I can see that. I guess at the end of the story, you could probably say, too, that Charlie faced his ultimate fear of not keeping Sailor safe. Yeah. By, you know, he sacrificed himself, but he didn't know if she was going to be safe. He just kind of had to let go and go, you know what? I'm going to do the best thing that I can do and... Give her the tools that she needs to survive and she and just have faith that but she can do it. But at the same time, yeah. <laughs> he saw that as the only way that she could be safe from that particular horror that she was facing. Yeah, it's an interesting concept because, you know, we do, as much as you love horror, we all have our things that we try to avoid in horror or that we think are too much for us. Yeah. One of the things that's always hard for me to watch in horror is anything that's associated with a morgue. Yeah. Or, like, funeral homes. Mm -hmm. I think that's because of watching Phantasm too young. (laughs) Oh, sure. I remember sitting and watching The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Yep. And, like, literally doing the kind of pillow over my face thing in some scenes and just, like, peeking out. (laughs) Like, ugh! 
ah. Like, I need to state her, like, one eye. Yeah. I just show, like, I just let one eye come out because I need to know what's happening, but I'm also too scared to look yeah. full on. <laughs> and that's kind of what this idea makes me think of, is, like, you make yourself get through it because it's terrifying and you kind of feel at the other end, like, I did it. Mm-hmm. I, I made it through that movie about that thing that's horrifying. <laughs> one more thing that Snyder talked about one of these stories that I definitely want to share now that we know that Sierra didn't get to read them, but I thought was interesting. He talks about a story when he used to play Buzz Lightyear at Disney. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was standing around in a Buzz Lightyear costume doing like autographs and getting pictures. And a child who was apparently lost was clinging to his leg. And the little boy was so excited to meet Buzz Lightyear. He just kept asking him questions. And he said the the boy couldn't find his mom. And so, you know, he set off his assistant. The guy that was standing there with him um, started the process of tracking down a kid's lost parent. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Buzz has to keep meeting these other kids. And so the boy is standing there the whole time sort of like dancing and like doing the moves along with him. And just kind of, you know, he's his new sidekick and moments later the mother shows up and she comes running and the kid runs to her and he's happy that he found her she swoops the kid up in her arms and then she smacks him in the face and she yells at him really angrily for getting lost and scott Scott explains that the kid in the face oh what the hell yeah not not buzz (laughs) no 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 not buzz (laughs) she scooped him up and she slaps the kid in the face and angrily starts yelling at him for getting lost and and scott talks about how you know i'm in this costume and like i can see this whole thing going down but i can't really say anything or do anything about it and the whole time there's kids approaching me for pictures explains that you know the look of horror that was on this kid's face when his mother was yelling at him and after that happened sort of put the idea in his head that in that moment as a parent when you lash out at your child while that anger is based in our own fears of failing to keep our child safe it's directed at the child and it's sort of the parent becomes the monster in that moment Mm -hmm. it makes me feel like icky and uncomfortable to even like talk about it out loud because it's kind of one of those things that like all parents are going to get to that point at some point where we're too angry and we yell too loud or we grab our kid a little too hard everybody's gonna do it and you feel like the biggest piece of shit after it happens so to see him sort of approach this was just like oh god are we really gonna talk about that yeah don't talk about that out loud you wrote that in a book oh my god (laughs) Stephen king kind of brings up that same idea in the shining too it's something that like and the the babadook too you know i mean it feeds off of that idea of like what happens when a parent goes over the edge and even if it's just for a second and you become a monster for your child it has gigantic repercussions. Yeah, yeah. Or it, it sometimes it's, you know, a small enough thing that it doesn't really. It, it has a momentary repercussion in the child and then you, you get past it and you, you know, I have no problem apologizing to my kid if I yell at him and, and I lose That's my good. temper. <laughs> yeah. You know, I will, I will tell him like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to yell. And we make up and we move on, you know? I was just interested in you guys ever... Do you ever recall being in a situation with your parents where like you felt like they were mad at you enough to sort of be the monster for a moment if you ever had a situation like that where you were like oh crap i did too much (laughs) i pushed her too far definitely (laughs) but i had bad parents so (laughs) we won't get into that it'll make everybody feel bad (laughs) my mom was a yeller so i don't think it was that i ever thought she was a monster just i think a mom of that generational time where i think it was okay back then (laughs) It was more accepted as a parenting tool to yell and scream. And she was that mama that would like 
slam cabinets when she was mad. She would just go oh, to the kitchen no. and even things just like, like bam, 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 bam. It's kind of hilarious. Yeah, it's just this, like passive aggressive. Like I'm just gonna go in the kitchen and slam all the doors really hard. And you're like, oh shit, mom's mad. <laughs> I think there was those like tiny little moments when you're like, oh god, she's coming. You can hear her stomping she's been down the hallway. The yeah, for 20 minutes, and then you hear when she's mad, you like you hear her feet like boom, 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 boom. You're like oh god, she's coming. <laughs> The monster. My uh, my my dad used to joke and call. He used to make jokes about he and my mom and call them God Godzilla and King Kong. Oh, <laughs> like Godzilla's coming for you. She's Uh-oh. coming. <laughs> I commend Scott Snyder for everything that he put into these books, both in the story and the way that he opened up at the end of this story. Because mm-hmm. I think that's really brave to put all that stuff out there for. Yeah, Everybody. I can't imagine how he felt publishing all of this, not just the story itself, but content in the back there. Sounds like there was some like therapeutic value yeah. in it, you yeah. know, and getting it out of your out of your head and letting people just being completely honest about your fears. I also went on Wikipedia and saw what else Scott Snyder has done. And apparently he's done a novel called Voodoo Heart, which is a collection uh-huh. of short stories. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm real curious about what those short stories are and if they kind of touch on the same subject matter. That's interesting. He's absolutely one of my favorite horror writers in comics. They, one of his other series is American Vampire, which I also mm-hmm. keep throwing into the pot to do on one of our episodes. I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. Yeah, for sure. I've got probably four or five different series from him that are either horror or sci-fi that are on my like top list of favorite stuff. He's a skilled person. I don't have a lot of social media input on this one. We did have one tweet that i wanted to share from walt keegan at wjk creations he said jock's art works so well with this story he's looking forward to the next chapter of the comic and he wanted to know would you want to see a movie for this there is mention that someone picked up a contract to do this movie really yeah but that doesn't mean that anything the the rights have been purchased to do it i feel like we kind of already said that like I have no idea how they would possibly do yeah, it. Yeah, like I'd be interested to see it, it but also like really skeptical and <laughs> kind of on edge about it. Yeah, it would almost need to be like a small release kind of art house movie. Yeah, uh-huh. because it can't it can't be watered down for a wide audience. Scott talks about this at the end too that he didn't expect this book to be like for everybody. He didn't expect it to be that popular, but yeah. he actually had to do a reprint of issue one and two. Oh, really? Because it was, yeah, which is really good for print comics these days. Plan B Entertainment announced that they purchased film rights back in 2014 hmm. to turn it into a major motion picture. They also announced that Snyder and Jock would serve as executive producers. That's good. That Yeah. So that's, that's like the best case scenario. <laughs> yeah. That was 2014, which is now two years ago, three years ago. So is that happening? I don't know. But I'd like to see it. Yeah, I would I would absolutely go see that. Horrors had a pretty amazing year in 2016 and 2017 so far. There's a lot of good things coming. So we seem to be on a good a good kick for quality horror films. So <laughs> good time to make it. Right? <laughs> yeah, especially if they've been thinking about it for a little yeah. bit at this point. I think that's a wrap for this. We went into it pretty hard. I think unanimously we love yeah, this book. Absolutely. Oh yeah. I'm I'm definitely <laughs> gonna reread it here in a bit. 
the next time you go out in the woods, you're going to be watching around the tree trunks. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I think some of these witches had two eyes and some had three, right? Yeah, and it almost seemed like some had like <laughs> like various four, eyes like, like lined up in like weird ways on their faces. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Very like alieny kind of bulbous weird <laughs> yeah. eyes. Mm-hmm. The Sirens of Scream is a member of the Meganerd Media family. Visit MeganerdMedia.com for geek-related columns, reviews, interviews, and videos. You can reach us via email, and please do, at SOS at MeganerdMedia.com. And you can find us at Twitter, at Sirens of Scream. You can find us on Tumblr at Sirens of Scream. And you can find our entire show catalog at SirensofScream.com. Jackie and Sierra, where can our listeners find you? I am Jackie the Robot on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Sierra Houck. That's a wrap for this episode. The next time we will be talking about... The things we can't handle in horror. Yeah. Irrational or not so irrational fears. (laughs) (laughs) That is going to be a scary one. I don't yeah. know. I'm I am. I'm super excited. I'm scared. <laughs> scared. <laughs> so thanks, everybody. And we will see you soon for more creepy, scary Bye. things. Bye.